Hey SCOTUS fans! For the next several episodes, I'll be reading an opinion from 1857 that has long since been overturned and relegated to the trash heap of bad Supreme Court decisions. Dred Scott v. Sanford. In the Dred Scott decision, the Taney Court held that African Americans, slave or free, were not citizens of the United States. I've decided to read this opinion over several episodes for two reasons. One is that it is incredibly lengthy, and the other is that its contents shock the conscience. By this I mean that its contents are so racist and offensive that both the listener and the reader are likely to need a little time to recover in between each segment. I do want to warn those listening, especially those listening with African ancestry, that this opinion is incredibly insulting and no longer has any place in United States constitutional law save for its historical evidence of the stain of slavery. And now, the 1857 opinion of the court in Dred Scott v. Sanford. Mr. Chief Justice Taney delivered the opinion of the court. This case has been twice argued. After the argument at the last term, differences of opinion were found to exist among the members of the court. And as the questions in controversy are of the highest importance, and the court was at that time much pressed by the ordinary business of the term, it was deemed advisable to continue the case and direct a re-argument on some of the points in order that we might have an opportunity of giving to the whole subject a more deliberate consideration. It has accordingly been again argued by counsel and considered by the court, and I now proceed to deliver its opinion. There are two leading questions presented by the record. One, had the Circuit Court of the United States jurisdiction to hear and determine the case between these parties? And two, if it had jurisdiction, is the judgment it has given erroneous or not? The plaintiff in error, who was also the plaintiff in the court below, was with his wife and children, held as slaves by the defendant in the state of Missouri, and he brought this action in the Circuit Court of the United States for that district to assert the title of himself and his family to freedom. The declaration is in the form usually adopted in that state to try questions of this description and contains the averment necessary to give the court jurisdiction that he and the defendant are citizens of different states, that is, he is a citizen of Missouri and the defendant a citizen of New York. The defendant pleaded in abatement to the jurisdiction of the court that the plaintiff was not a citizen of the state of Missouri, as alleged in his declaration, being a Negro of African descent whose ancestors were of pure African blood and who were brought into this country and sold as slaves. To this plea, 
the plaintiff demurred, and the defendant joined in demurrer. The court overruled the plea and gave judgment that the defendant should answer over, and he thereupon put in sundry pleas in bar, upon which issues were joined, and at the trial the verdict and judgment were in his favor, whereupon the plaintiff brought his writ of error. Before we speak of the pleas in bar, it will be proper to dispose of the questions which have arisen on the plea in abatement. That plea denies the right of the plaintiff to sue in a court of the United States for the reasons therein stated. If the question raised by it is legally before us and the court should be of opinion that the facts stated in it disqualify the plaintiff from becoming a citizen in the sense in which that word is used in the Constitution of the United States, then the judgment of the circuit court is erroneous and must be reversed. It is suggested, however, that this plea is not before us and that as the judgment in the court below on this plea was in favor of the plaintiff, he does not seek to reverse it or bring it before the court for a revision by his writ of error, and also that the defendant waived this defense by pleading over and thereby admitted the jurisdiction of the court. But in making this objection, we think the peculiar and limited jurisdiction of courts of the United States has not been averted to. This peculiar and limited jurisdiction has made it necessary in these courts to adopt different rules and principles of pleading, so far as jurisdiction is concerned, from those which regulate courts of common law in England and in the different states of the Union which have adopted the common law rules. In these last-mentioned courts, where their character and rank are analogous to that of a circuit court of the United States, in other words, where they are what the law terms courts of general jurisdiction, they are presumed to have jurisdiction unless the contrary appears. In these last-mentioned courts, where their character and rank are analogous to that of a circuit court of the United States, in other words, where they are what the law terms courts of general jurisdiction, they are presumed to have jurisdiction unless the contrary appears. No averment in the pleadings of the plaintiff is necessary in order to give jurisdiction. If the defendant objects to it, he must plead it specially and unless the fact on which he relies is found to be true by a jury or admitted to be true by the plaintiff, the jurisdiction cannot be disputed in an appellate court. Now it is not necessary to inquire whether, in courts of that description, a party who pleads over in bar when a plea to the jurisdiction has been ruled against him does or does not waive his plea, nor whether upon a judgment in his favor on the pleas in bar and a writ of error brought by the plaintiff, the question upon the plea in abatement would be open for revision in the appellate court. Cases 
that may have been decided in such courts or rules that may have been laid down by common law pleaders can have no influence in the decision in this court because under the Constitution and laws of the United States, the rules which govern the pleadings in its courts in questions of jurisdiction stand on different principles and are regulated by different laws. This difference arises, as we have said, from the peculiar character of the government of the United States. For although it is sovereign and supreme in its appropriate sphere of action, yet it does not possess all the powers which usually belong to the sovereignty of a nation. Certain specified powers enumerated in the Constitution have been conferred upon it, and neither the legislative, executive, nor judicial departments of the government can lawfully exercise any authority beyond the limits marked out by the Constitution. And in regulating the judicial department, the cases in which the courts of the United States shall have jurisdiction are particularly and specifically enumerated and defined, and they are not authorized to take cognizance of any cases which does not come within the description therein specified. Hence, when a plaintiff sues in a court of the United States, it is necessary that he should show in his pleading that the suit he brings is within the jurisdiction of the court and that he is entitled to sue there. And if he omits to do this, and should, by any oversight of the circuit court, obtain a judgment in his favor, the judgment would be reversed in the appellate court for want of jurisdiction in the court below. The jurisdiction would not be presumed, as in the case of a common law English or state court, unless the contrary appeared. But the record when it comes before the appellate court, must show affirmatively that the inferior court had authority under the Constitution to hear and determine the case. And if the plaintiff claims a right to sue in a circuit court of the United States under that provision of the Constitution which gives jurisdiction in controversies between citizens of different states, he must distinctly aver in his pleading that they are citizens of different states and he cannot maintain his suit without showing that fact in the pleadings. This point was decided in the case of Bingham v. Cabot and ever since adhered to by the court and in Jackson v. Ashton it was held that the objection to which it was open could not be waived by the opposite party because consent of parties could not give jurisdiction. It is needless to accumulate cases on this subject. Those already referred to and the cases of Capron v. Van Norden and Monolay v. Murray are sufficient to show the rule of which we have spoken. The case of Capron v. Van Norden strikingly illustrates the difference between a common law court 
and a court of the United States. If, however, the fact of citizenship is averred in the declaration and the defendant does not deny it and put it in issue by plea in abatement, he cannot offer evidence at the trial to disprove it and consequently cannot avail himself of the objection in the appellate court unless the defect should be apparent in some other part of the record. For if there is no plea in abatement and the want of jurisdiction does not appear in any other part of the transcript brought up by the writ of error, the undisputed averment of citizenship in the declaration must be taken in this court to be true. In this case, the citizenship is averred, but it is denied by the defendant in the manner required by the rules of pleading, and the fact upon which the denial is based is admitted by the demurrer. And if the plea and demurrer and judgment of the court below upon it are before us upon this record. The question to be decided is whether the facts stated in the plea are sufficient to show that the plaintiff is not entitled to sue as a citizen in a court of the United States. We think they are before us. The plea in abatement and the judgment of the court upon it are a part of the judicial proceedings in the circuit court and are there recorded as such, and a writ of error always brings up to the superior court the whole record of the proceedings in the court below. And in the case of the United States v. Smith, this court said that the case being brought up by writ of error, the whole record was under consideration of this court. And this being the case in the present instance, the plea in abatement is necessarily under consideration, and it becomes, therefore, our duty to decide whether the facts stated in the plea are or are not sufficient to show that the plaintiff is not entitled to sue as a citizen in a court of the United States. This is certainly a very serious question and one that now for the first time has been brought for decision before this court. But it is brought here by those who have a right to bring it, and it is our duty to meet it and decide it. The question is simply this. Can a Negro whose ancestors were imported into this country and sold as slaves become a member of the political community formed and brought into existence by the Constitution of the United States and, as such, become entitled to all the rights and privileges and immunities guaranteed by that instrument to the citizen, one of which rights is the privilege of suing in a court of the United States in the cases specified in the Constitution. It will be observed that the plea applies to that class of persons only whose ancestors were Negroes of the African race and imported into this country and sold and held as slaves. The only matter in issue before this court, therefore, is whether the descendants of such slaves 
when they shall be emancipated, or who are born of parents who had become free before their birth, are citizens of a state in the sense in which the word citizen is used in the Constitution of the United States, and this being the only matter in dispute on the pleadings, the court must be understood as speaking in this opinion of that class only, that is, of those persons who are the descendants of Africans who were imported into this country and sold as slaves. The situation of this population was altogether unlike that of the Indian race. The latter, it is true, formed no part of the colonial communities and never amalgamated with them in social connections or in government. But although they were uncivilized, they were yet a free and independent people associated together in nations or tribes and governed by their own laws. Many of these political communities were situated in territories to which the white race claimed the ultimate right of dominion. But that claim was acknowledged to be subject to the right of the Indians to occupy it as long as they thought proper, and neither the English nor colonial governments claimed or exercised any dominion over the tribe or nation by whom it was occupied, nor claimed the right to the possession of the territory until the tribe or nation consented to cede it. These Indian governments were regarded and treated as foreign governments as much so as if an ocean had separated the red man from the white, and their freedom has constantly been acknowledged from the time of the first emigration to the English colonies to the present day by the different governments which succeeded each other. Treaties have been negotiated with them, and their alliance sought for in war, and the people who compose these Indian political communities have always been treated as foreigners not living under our government. It is true that the course of events has brought the Indian tribes within the limits of the United States under subjection to the white race, and it has been found necessary, for their sake as well as our own, to regard them as in a state of pupillage and to legislate to a certain extent over them and the territory they occupy. But they may, without doubt, like the subjects of any other foreign government, be naturalized by the authority of Congress and become citizens of a state and of the United States. And if an individual should leave his nation or tribe and take up his abode among the white population, he would be entitled to all the rights and privileges which would belong to an emigrant from any other foreign people. We proceed to examine the case as presented by the pleadings. The words people of the United States and citizens are synonymous terms and mean the same thing. They both describe the political body who, according to our Republican institutions, form the sovereignty and who hold the power and conduct the government through their representatives. They are what we familiarly call the sovereign people, and every citizen is one of this people and a constituent member of this sovereignty.
The question before us is whether the class of persons described in the plea in abatement compose a portion of this people and are constituent members of this sovereignty. We think they are not, and that they are not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution, and therefore claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for and secures to citizens of the United States. On the contrary, they were at that time considered as a subordinate and inferior class of beings who had been subjugated by the dominant race and, whether emancipated or not, yet remained subject to their authority and had no rights or privileges but such as those who held the power and the government might choose to grant them. It is not the province of the court to decide upon the justice or injustice, the policy or impolicy of these laws. The decision of that question belonged to the political or lawmaking power, to those who formed the sovereignty and framed the Constitution. The duty of the court is to interpret the instrument they have framed with the best lights we can obtain on the subject and to administer it as we find it, according to its true intent and meaning when it was adopted. In discussing this question, we must not confound the rights of citizenship which a state may confer within its own limits and the rights of citizenship as a member of the Union. It does not by any means follow, because he has all the rights and privileges of a citizen of a state, that he must be a citizen of the United States. He may have all the rights and privileges of the citizen of a state and yet not be entitled to the rights and privileges of a citizen in any other state. For previous to the adoption of the Constitution of the United States, every state had the undoubted right to confer on whomsoever it pleased the character of citizen and to endow him with all its rights. But this character, of course, was confined to the boundaries of the state and gave him no rights or privileges in other states beyond those secured to him by the laws of nations and the comity of states. Nor have the several states surrendered the power of conferring these rights and privileges by adopting the Constitution of the United States. Nor have the several states surrendered the power of conferring these rights and privileges by adopting the Constitution of the United States. Each state may still confer them upon an alien, or anyone it thinks proper, or upon any class or description of persons, yet he would not be a citizen in the sense in which that word is used in the Constitution of the United States, nor entitled to sue as such in one of its courts, nor to the privileges and immunities of a citizen in the other states. The rights which he would acquire would be restricted to the state which gave them. The Constitution has conferred on Congress the right to establish 
a uniform rule of naturalization, and this right is evidently exclusive and has always been held by this court to be so. Consequently, no state since the adoption of the Constitution can, by naturalizing an alien, invest him with the rights and privileges secured to a citizen of a state under the federal government. Although, so far as the state alone was concerned, he would undoubtedly be entitled to the rights of a citizen and clothed with all the rights and immunities which the Constitution and laws of the state attached to that character. It is very clear, therefore, that no state can, by any act or law of its own, passed since the adoption of the Constitution, introduce a new member into the political community created by the Constitution of the United States. It cannot make him a member of this community by making him a member of its own. And for the same reason, it cannot introduce any person or description of persons who were not intended to be embraced in this new political family which the Constitution brought into existence, but were intended to be excluded from it. The question then arises whether the provisions of the Constitution in relation to the personal rights and privileges to which the citizen of a state should be entitled embraced the Negro African race at that time in this country who might afterwards be imported, who had then or should afterwards be made free in any state, and to put it in the power of a single state to make him a citizen of the United States and endue him with the full rights and citizenship in every other state without their consent? Does the Constitution of the United States act upon him whenever he shall be made free under the laws of a state and raised there to the rank of a citizen and immediately clothe him with all the privileges of a citizen in every other state? and in its own courts? The court might think the affirmative of these propositions cannot be maintained. And if it cannot, the plaintiff in error could not be a citizen of the state of Missouri within the meaning of the Constitution of the United States and consequently was not entitled to sue in its courts. It is true, every person in every class and description of persons who were, at the time of the adoption of the Constitution, recognized as citizens in the several states, became also citizens of this new political body, but none other. It was formed by them and for them and their posterity, but for no one else. And the personal rights and privileges guaranteed to citizens of this new sovereignty were intended to embrace those only who were then members of the several state communities or who should afterwards by birthright or otherwise become members according to the provisions of the Constitution and the principles on which it was founded. It was the union of those who were, at that time, members of distinct and separate political communities into one political family whose power for certain specified purposes was to extend over the whole territory of the United States. And it gave to each citizen rights and privileges outside of his state, 
which he did not before possess, and placed him in every other state upon a perfect equality with its own citizens as to rights of person and rights of property. It made him a citizen of the United States. It becomes necessary, therefore, to determine who were citizens of the several states when the Constitution was adopted. And in order to do this, we must recur to the government's and institutions of the 13 colonies when they separated from Great Britain and formed new sovereignties and took their places in the family of independent nations. We must inquire who, at that time, were recognized as the people or citizens of a state whose rights and liberties had been outraged by the English government and who declared their independence and assumed the powers of government to defend their rights by force of arms. In the opinion of the court, the legislation and histories of the times, and the language used in the Declaration of Independence, show that neither the class of persons who had been imported as slaves, nor their descendants, whether they had become free or not, were then acknowledged as part of the people nor intended to be included in the general words used in that memorable instrument. It is difficult at this day to realize the state of public opinion in relation to that unfortunate race which prevailed in the civilized and enlightened portions of the world at the time of the Declaration of Independence and when the Constitution of the United States was framed and adopted. But the public history of every European nation displays it in a manner too plain to be mistaken. They had for more than a century before been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with the white race either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect, and that the Negro must justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his benefit. He was bought and sold and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic whenever a profit could be made by it. This opinion was at that time fixed and universal in the civilized portion of the white race. It was regarded as an axiom in morals as well as in politics, which no one thought of disputing or supposed to be open to dispute, and men in every grade and position in society daily and habitually acted upon it in their private pursuits as well as in matters of public concern, without doubting for a moment the correctness of this opinion. And in no nation was this opinion more firmly fixed or more uniformly acted upon than by the English government and English people. They not only seized them on the coast of Africa and sold them or held them in slavery for their own use, but they took them as ordinary articles of merchandise to every country where they could make a profit on them and were far more extensively engaged in this commerce than any other nation in the world. The opinion 
thus entertained and acted upon in England was naturally impressed upon the colonies they founded on this side of the Atlantic, and accordingly a Negro of the African race was regarded by them as an article of property, and held and bought and sold as such, in every one of the thirteen colonies which united in the Declaration of Independence and afterwards formed the Constitution of the United States. The slaves were more or less numerous in the different colonies as slave labor was found more or less profitable, but no one seems to have doubted the correctness of the prevailing opinion of the time. The legislation of the different colonies furnishes positive and indisputable proof of this fact. It would be tedious, in this opinion, to enumerate the various laws they passed upon this subject. It will be sufficient as a sample of the legislation which then generally prevailed throughout the British colonies to give the laws of two of them, one being still a large slaveholding state and the other the first state in which slavery ceased to exist. The province of Maryland in 1717 passed a law declaring that if any free Negro or mulatto intermarry with any white person or if any white man shall intermarry with any Negro or mulatto woman, such Negro or mulatto shall become a slave during life, excepting mulattoes born of white women who for such intermarriage shall only become servants for seven years to be disposed of as the justices of the county court where such marriage so happens shall think fit to be applied by them towards the support of a public school within the said county and any white man or white woman who shall intermarry as aforesaid with any negro or mulatto such white man or white woman shall become servants during the term of seven years and shall be disposed of by the justices as aforesaid and be applied to the uses aforesaid. The other colonial law to which we refer was passed by Massachusetts in 1705. It is entitled An Act for the Better Preventing of a Spurious and Mixed Issue, and it provides that if any Negro or mulatto shall presume to smite or strike any person of the English or other Christian nation, such Negro or mulatto shall be severely whipped at the discretion of the justices before whom the offender shall be convicted, and that none of Her Majesty's English or Scottish subjects, nor of any other Christian nation within this province, shall contract matrimony with any Negro or mulatto, nor shall any person duly authorized to solemnize marriage presume to join any such. The other colonial law to which we refer was passed by Massachusetts in 1705. It is entitled, An Act for the Better Preventing of a Spurious and Mixed Issue, and it provides that if any Negro or mulatto shall presume to smite or strike any person of the English or other Christian nation, such Negro or mulatto shall be severely whipped at the discretion of the justices before whom the offender shall be convicted. 
and that none of Her Majesty's English or Scottish subjects, nor of any other Christian nation within this province, shall contract matrimony with any Negro or mulatto, nor shall any person duly authorized to solemnize marriage presume to join any such in marriage on pain of forfeiting the sum of fifty pounds, one moiety thereof to her majesty, for and towards the support of the government within this province, and the other moiety to him or them that shall inform and sue for the same, in any of her majesty's courts of record within the province, by bill, plaint, or information." We give both of these laws in the words used by the respective legislative bodies because the language in which they are framed, as well as the provisions contained in them, show too plainly to be misunderstood the degraded condition of this unhappy race. They were still in force when the revolution began and are a faithful index to the state of feeling towards the class of persons of whom they speak, and of the position they occupied throughout the thirteen colonies, in the eyes and thoughts of the men who framed the Declaration of Independence and established the state constitutions and governments. They show that a perpetual and impassable barrier was intended to be erected between the white race and the one which they had reduced to slavery, and governed as subjects with absolute and despotic power, and which they then looked upon as so far below them in the scale of created beings, that intermarriages between white persons and Negroes or mulattoes were regarded as unnatural and immoral, and punished as crimes, not only in the parties, but in the person who joined them in marriage, and no distinction in this respect was made between the free Negro or mulatto and the slave. But this stigma of the deepest degradation was fixed upon the whole race. We refer to these historical facts for the purpose of showing the fixed opinions concerning that race upon which the statesmen of that day spoke and acted. It is necessary to do this in order to determine whether the general terms used in the Constitution of the United States as to the rights of man and the rights of the people was intended to include them or to give to them or their posterity the benefit of any of its provisions. The language of the Declaration of Independence is equally conclusive. It begins by declaring that when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God entitle them, a decent respect for the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation." It then proceeds to say, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, 
that among them is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The general words above quoted would seem to embrace the whole human family, and if they were used in a similar instrument at this day, would be so understood. But it is too clear for dispute that the enslaved African race were not intended to be included and formed no part of the people who framed and adopted this declaration, for if the language as understood in that day would embrace them, the conduct of the distinguished men who framed the Declaration of Independence would have been utterly and flagrantly inconsistent with the principles they asserted, and instead of the sympathy of mankind to which they so confidently appealed, they would have deserved and received universal rebuke and reprobation. Yet the men who framed this declaration were great men, high in literary acquirements, high in their sense of honor, and incapable of asserting principles inconsistent with those on which they were acting. They perfectly understood the meaning of the language they used and how it would be understood by others, and they knew that it would not in any part of the civilized world be supposed to embrace the Negro race, which, by common consent, had been excluded from civilized governments and the family of nations and doomed to slavery. They spoke and acted according to the then-established doctrines and principles, and in the ordinary language of the day, and no one misunderstood them. The unhappy black race were separated from the white by indelible marks and laws long before established and were never thought of or spoken of except as property. And when the claims of the owner or the profit of the trader were supposed to need protection. This state of public opinion had undergone no change when the Constitution was adopted, as is equally evident from its provisions and language. The brief preamble sets forth by whom it was formed, for what purposes, and for whose benefit and protection. It declares that it is formed by the people of the United States, that is to say, by those who were members of the different political communities in the several states, and its great object is declared to be to secure the blessings of liberty to themselves and their posterity. It speaks in general terms of the people of the United States and of citizens of the several states when it is providing for the exercise of the powers granted or the privileges secured to the citizen. It does not define what description of persons are intended to be included under these terms or who shall be regarded as a citizen and one of the people. It uses them as terms so well understood that no further description or definition was necessary. But there are two clauses in the Constitution which point directly and specifically to the Negro race as a separate class of persons and show clearly that they were not regarded as a portion of the people or citizens 
of the government then formed. One of these clauses reserves to each of the 13 states the right to import slaves until the year 1808 if it thinks proper, and the importation which it thus sanctions was unquestionably of persons of the race of which we are speaking, as the traffic in slaves in the United States had always been confined to them. And by the other provision, the states pledge themselves to each other to maintain the right of property of the master by delivering up to him any slave who may have escaped from his service and be found within their respective territories. By the first above-mentioned clause, therefore, the right to purchase and hold this property is directly sanctioned and authorized for 20 years by the people who framed the Constitution. And by the second, they pledge themselves to maintain and uphold the right of the master in the manner specified, as long as the government they then formed should endure. And these two provisions show conclusively that neither the description of persons therein referred to nor their descendants were embraced in any of the other provisions of the Constitution, for certainly these two clauses were not intended to confer on them or their posterity the blessings of liberty or any of the personal rights so carefully provided for the citizen. No one of that race had ever migrated to the United States voluntarily. All of them had been brought here as articles of merchandise. The number that had been emancipated at that time were but few in comparison with those held in slavery, and they were identified in the public mind with the race to which they belonged, and regarded as part of the slave population rather than the free. It is obvious that they were not even in the minds of the framers of the Constitution when they were conferring special rights and privileges upon the citizens of a state in every other part of the Union. Indeed, when we look to the condition of this race in the several states at the time, it is impossible to believe that these rights and privileges were intended to be extended to them. It is very true that in that portion of the Union where the labor of the Negro race was found to be unsuited to the climate and unprofitable to the master, but few slaves were held at the time of the Declaration of Independence and when the Constitution was adopted. It had entirely worn out in one of them, and measures had been taken for its gradual abolition in several others. But this change had not been produced by any change of opinion in relation to this race, but because it was discovered from experience that slave labor was unsuited to the climate and production of these states. For some of the states where it had ceased or nearly ceased to exist were actively engaged in the slave trade, procuring cargoes on the coast of Africa and transporting them for sale to those parts of the Union where their labor was found to be profitable and suited to the climate and productions. And this traffic was openly carried on, and fortunes accumulated by it without reproach from the people of the states where they resided. 
and it can hardly be supposed that in the states where it was then countenanced in its worst form, that is, in the seizure and transportation, the people could have regarded those who were emancipated as entitled to equal rights with themselves. And we may here again refer in support of this proposition to the plain and unequivocal language of the laws of the several states, some passed after the Declaration of Independence and before the Constitution was adopted, and some since the government went into operation. We need not refer on this point particularly to the laws of the present slaveholding states. Their statute books are full of provisions in relation to this class in the same spirit with the Maryland law, which we have before quoted. They have continued to treat them as an inferior class and to subject them to strict police regulations, drawing a broad line of distinction between the citizen and the slave races, and legislating in relation to them upon the same principle which prevailed at the time of the Declaration of Independence. As it relates to these states, it is too plain for argument that they have never been regarded as a part of the people or citizens of the state, nor supposed to possess any political rights which the dominant race might not withhold or grant at their pleasure. And as long ago as 1822, the Court of Appeals of Kentucky decided that free Negroes and mulattoes were not citizens within the meaning of the Constitution of the United States, and the correctness of this decision is recognized and the same doctrine affirmed. And if we turn to the legislation of the states where slavery had worn out, or measures taken for its speedy abolition, we shall find the same opinions and principles equally fixed and equally acted upon. Thus, Massachusetts, in 1786, passed a law similar to the colonial one of which we have spoken. The law of 1786, like the law of 1705, forbids the marriage of any white person with any Negro, Indian, or mulatto, and inflicts a penalty of 50 pounds upon anyone who shall join them in marriage, and declares all such marriage absolutely null and void, and degrades thus the unhappy issue of the marriage by fixing upon it the stain of bastardy. And this mark of degradation was renewed and again impressed upon the race in the careful and deliberate preparation of their revised code published in 1836. This code forbids any person from joining in marriage any white person with any Indian, Negro, or mulatto, and subjects the party who shall offend in this respect to imprisonment not exceeding six months in the common jail, or to hard labor, and to a fine of not less than fifty nor more than two hundred dollars, and, like the law of 1786, it declares the marriage to be absolutely null and void. It will be seen that the punishment is increased by the code upon the person who shall marry them, by adding imprisonment to a pecuniary penalty. So too in Connecticut, we refer more particularly to the legislation of this state, 
because it was not only among the first to put an end to slavery within its own territory, but was the first to fix a mark of reprobation upon the African slave trade. The law last mentioned was passed in October 1788, about nine months after the state had ratified and adopted the present Constitution of the United States, and by that law, it prohibited its own citizens under severe penalties from engaging in the trade and declared all policies of insurance on the vessel or cargo made in the state to be null and void. But up to the time of the adoption of the Constitution, there is nothing in the legislation of the state indicating any change of opinion as to the relative rights and position of the white and black races in this country, or indicating that it meant to place the latter when free upon a level with its citizens, and certainly nothing which would have led the slaveholding states to suppose that Connecticut designed to claim for them under the new constitution the equal rights and privileges and rank of citizens in every other state. The first step taken by Connecticut upon this subject was as early as 1774 when it passed an act forbidding the further importation of slaves into the state. But the section containing the prohibition is introduced by the following preamble. Quote, and whereas the increase of slaves in this state is injurious to the poor and inconvenient, unquote. This recital would appear to have been carefully introduced in order to prevent any misunderstanding of the motive which induced the legislature to pass the law and places it distinctly upon the interest and convenience of the white population, excluding the inference that it might have been intended in any degree for the benefit of the other. And in the Act of 1784, by which the issue of slaves born after the time therein mentioned were to be free at a certain age, the section is again introduced by a preamble assigning a similar motive for the Act. It is in these words, quote, Whereas sound policy requires that the abolition of slavery should be effected as soon as may be consistent with the rights of individuals and the public safety and welfare, unquote. Showing that the right of property in the master was to be protected and that the measure was one of policy and to prevent the injury and inconvenience to the whites of a slave population in the state. And still further pursuing its legislation, we find that in the same statute passed in 1774, which prohibited the further importation of slaves into the state, there is also a provision by which any Negro, Indian, or mulatto servant who was found wandering out of the town or place to which he belonged without a written pass, such as in therein described, was made liable to be seized by anyone, and taken before the next authority to be examined and delivered up to his master, who was required to pay the charge which had accrued thereby. And a subsequent section of the same law provides that if any free Negro shall travel without such pass, and shall be stopped, seized, or taken up, he shall pay all charges arising thereby, 
and this law was in full operation when the Constitution of the United States was adopted, and it was not repealed until 1797, so that up to that time, free Negroes and mulattoes were associated with servants and slaves in the police regulations established by the laws of the state. And again in 1833, Connecticut passed another law which made it penal to set up or establish any school in that state for the instruction of persons of the African race, not inhabitants of the state, or to instruct or teach in any such school or institution or board or harbor for that purpose any such person without the previous consent in writing of the civil authority of the town in which such school or institution might be. And it appears by the case of Crandall v. the State that upon an information filed against Prudence Crandall for a violation of this law, one of the points raised in the defense was that the law was a violation of the Constitution of the United States and that the persons instructed, although of the African race, were citizens of other states and therefore entitled to the rights and privileges of citizens in the state of Connecticut. But Chief Justice Daggett, before whom the case was tried, held that persons of that description were not citizens of a state within the meaning of the word citizen in the Constitution of the United States, and were not therefore entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens in other states. The case was carried up to the Supreme Court of Errors of the state, and the question fully argued there, but the case went off upon another point, and no opinion was expressed on this question. We have made this particular examination into the legislative and judicial action of Connecticut because from the early hostility it played to the slave trade on the coast of Africa, we may expect to find the laws of that state as lenient and favorable to the subject race as those of any other state in the Union, and if we find that, at the time the Constitution was adopted, they were not even there raised to the rank of citizens, but were still held and treated as property, and the laws relating to them passed with reference altogether to the interest and convenience of the white race, we shall hardly find them elevated to a higher rank anywhere else. A brief notice of the laws of two other states, and we shall pass on to other considerations. By the laws of New Hampshire, collected and finally passed in 1815, no one was permitted to be enrolled in the militia of the state but free white citizens, and the same provision is found in a subsequent collection of the laws made in 1855. Nothing could more strongly mark the entire repudiation of the African race. The alien is excluded because, being born in a foreign country, he cannot be a member of the community until he is naturalized. But why are the African race, born in the state, not permitted to share in one of the highest duties of the citizen? The answer is obvious. He is not, by the institutions and laws of the state, numbered among its people. 
He forms no part of the sovereignty of the state and is not therefore called on to uphold and defend it. Again, in 1822, Rhode Island, in its revised code, passed a law forbidding persons who were authorized to join persons in marriage from joining in marriage any white person with any Negro, Indian, or mulatto under the penalty of $200 and declaring all such marriages absolutely null and void. And the same law was again reenacted in its revised code of 1844. So that, down to the last mentioned period, the strongest mark of inferiority and degradation was fastened upon the African race in that state. It would be impossible to enumerate and compress in the space usually allotted to an opinion of a court the various laws marking the condition of this race, which were passed from time to time, after the revolution, and before and since the adoption of the Constitution of the United States. In addition to those already referred to, it is sufficient to say that Chancellor Kent, whose accuracy and research no one will question, states in the sixth edition of his commentaries that no part of the country except Maine did the African race, in point of fact, participate equally with the whites in the exercise of civil and political rights. The legislation of the states, therefore, shows in a manner not to be mistaken the inferior and subject condition of that race at the time the Constitution was adopted, and long afterwards, throughout the 13 states by which that instrument was framed, and it is hardly consistent with the respect due to these states to suppose that they regarded at that time as fellow citizens and members of the sovereignty a class of beings whom they had thus stigmatized, whom, as we are bound out of respect to the state sovereignties to assume, they had deemed it just and necessary thus to stigmatize and upon whom they had impressed such deep and enduring marks of inferiority and degradation, or that, when they met in convention to form the Constitution, they looked upon them as a portion of their constituents or designed to include them in the provisions so carefully inserted for the security and protection of the liberties and rights of their citizens." It cannot be supposed that they intended to secure to them rights and privileges and rank in the new political body throughout the Union which every one of them denied within the limits of its own dominion. More especially, it cannot be believed that the large slaveholding states regarded them as included in the word citizens or would have consented to a constitution which might compel them to receive them in that character from another state. For, if they were so received, and entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens, it would exempt them from the operation of the special laws and from the police regulations which they considered to be necessary for their own safety. It would give to persons of the Negro race who were recognized as citizens 
in any one state of the Union the right to enter every other state whenever they pleased, singly or in companies, without pass or passport, and without obstruction, to sojourn there as long as they pleased, to go where they pleased at every hour of the day or night without molestation, unless they committed some violation of law for which a white man would be punished. And it would give them the full liberty of speech in public and in private upon all subjects upon which its own citizens might speak. To hold public meetings upon political affairs and to keep and carry arms wherever they went. And all of this would be done in the face of the subject race of the same color, both free and slaves, and inevitably producing discontent and insubordination among them and endangering the peace and safety of the state. It is impossible, it would seem, to believe that the great men of the slaveholding states who took so large a share in framing the Constitution of the United States and exercised so much influence in procuring its adoption could have been so forgetful or regardless of their own safety and the safety of those who trusted and confided in them. Besides, this want of foresight and care would have been utterly inconsistent with the caution displayed in providing for the admission of new members into this political family. For when they gave to the citizens of each state the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states, they at the same time took from the several states the power of naturalization and confined that power exclusively to the federal government. No state was willing to permit another state to determine who should or should not be admitted as one of its citizens and entitled to demand equal rights and privileges with their own people within their own territories. The right of naturalization was therefore, with one accord, surrendered by the states and confided to the federal government. And this power granted to Congress to establish a uniform rule of naturalization is, by the well-understood meaning of the word, confined to persons born in a foreign country, under a foreign government. It is not a power to raise to the rank of citizen anyone born in the United States who, from birth or parentage, by the laws of the country, belongs to an inferior and subordinate class. And when we find the states guarding themselves from the indiscreet or improper admission by other states of emigrants from other countries by giving the power exclusively to Congress, we cannot fail to see that they could never have left with the states a much more important power, that is, the power of transforming into citizens a numerous class of persons who, in that character, would be much more dangerous to the peace and safety of a large portion of the Union than the few foreigners one of the states might improperly naturalize. The Constitution, upon its adoption, obviously took from the states all power by any subsequent legislation to introduce as a citizen into the political family of the United States anyone, no matter where he was born or what might be his character or condition, 
and it gave to Congress the power to confer this character upon those only who were born outside of the dominions of the United States. And no law of a state, therefore, passed since the Constitution was adopted, can give any right of citizenship outside of its own territory. A clause similar to the one in the Constitution in relation to the rights and immunities of citizens of one state in the other states was contained in the Articles of Confederation, but there is a difference of language which is worthy of note. The provision in the Articles of Confederation was that the free inhabitants of each of the states, paupers, vagabonds, and fugitives from justice, accepted should be entitled to all the privileges and immunities of free citizens in the several states. It will be observed that under this confederation, each state had the right to decide for itself and in its own tribunals whom it would acknowledge as a free inhabitant of another state. The term free inhabitant in the generality of its terms would certainly include one of the African race who had been manumitted. But no example, we think, can be found of his admission to all the privileges of citizenship in any state of the Union after these articles were formed and while they continued in force. And notwithstanding the generality of the words free inhabitants, it is very clear that according to their accepted meaning in that day, they did not include the African race, whether free or not. For the fifth section of the ninth article provides that Congress should have the power to agree upon the number of land forces to be raised and to make requisitions from each state for its quota in proportion to the number of white inhabitants in such state which requisition should be binding. Words could hardly have been used which more strongly marked the line of distinction between the citizen and the subject, the free and the subjugated races. The latter were not even counted when the inhabitants of a state were to be embodied in proportion to its numbers for the general defense. And it cannot for a moment be supposed that a class of persons thus separated and rejected from those who formed the sovereignty of the states were yet intended to be included under the words free inhabitants in the preceding article to whom privileges and immunities were so carefully secured in every state. But although this clause of the Articles of Confederation is the same in principle with that inserted in the Constitution, yet the comprehensive word inhabitant, which might be construed to include an emancipated slave, is omitted, and the privilege is confined to citizens of the state. And this alteration in words would hardly have been made unless a different meaning was intended to be conveyed or a possible doubt removed. The just and fair inference is that, as this privilege was about to be placed under the protection of the general government and the words expounded by its tribunals, and all power in relation to it taken from the state and its courts, 
it was deemed prudent to describe with precision and caution the persons to whom this high privilege was given, and the word citizen was on that account substituted for the words free inhabitant. The word citizen excluded, and no doubt intended to exclude, foreigners who had become citizens of some one of the states when the Constitution was adopted, and also every description of persons who were not fully recognized as citizens in the several states. This, upon any fair construction of the instruments to which we have referred, was evidently the object and purpose of this change of words. We've come to the end of this segment of this opinion, and we'll continue tomorrow where we left off. As always, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.